This guy was a D1 college athlete. The sport was tennis. And after his college career, he needed something completely different. So he got into NFTs. Morgan Stone is the founder of an NFT project called Rue True. And no, it's not infamous for its cute art, but actually for its fun community. Launching over a year ago, they've helped place hundreds of people into Web3 jobs and give them the skill sets they need to actually make money in the space. But now the company's on a completely different mission. With the new product they're launching, they plan to infiltrate a multi-billion dollar industry. It's called Seeker, proof of work experience, undeniable resumes on the blockchain. But it won't come easy. So I sat down with Morgan and we talked about how he plans to continue supporting his NFT community and drive them value with this new product called Seeker. And of course, we talk about his biggest lessons and some alpha that's coming very soon for the community. So as always, hide your seed phrase and tune in because this is going to get interesting. Calm down before you stress up the groove. The energy a little different when the blessings accrue. Hey, who you talking to? Just know I ain't no regular fool. Could be anything in the world, but I can never be you because I had time. All right, welcome back, Seed Phrases, to another episode. Today we have a guest. This is actually the first guest who comes back on the Seed Phrase podcast. So this is the first two-part episode with the one, the only Morgan Stone. What's going on, bro? How are you? How you doing, Mo? It's uh, great to be back. I didn't know I was the only, uh, the one and only two-time appearance. So that's pretty yeah, cool. You're the one, the only, and the first as well. So you definitely got to make you a belt for this or a po out. You, you hear that, Luca? I'm, I'm the first to come on twice. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. I've been actually talking to Luca. I'm trying to get him back uh, back on the show as well because they've been doing a lot of big things and they just announced some new stuff too. So I'm excited to see what they do. But yeah, bro, today today's episode is all about you. I want to start off a little bit different since we're going to be talking about obviously everything you guys have been working on for last year. Figured why not ask you about, since you're a builder in the space, what are the top three predictions you see that are going to happen to the space in 2023? Oof, top three predictions. Let's see. I think there's going to be a lot of innovation, right? A lot of a lot of stuff that people have had in the works is finally going to surface later this year, which is really exciting. Um, it may have been you who asked me my predictions for this year last year when we spoke, and I yeah. predicted there would be a heavy bloodbath in the ecosystem, yep. which is currently taking place. A lot of projects are disappearing. A lot of founders are just going AWOL. You're, you check their pages and they haven't tweeted in months. Um, so I think you know, one, a lot of innovation going to surface. Two, that bloodbath is going to continue. And three, I think, you know, there's going to be a, a shift in the community element as well. And there's going to be more uh, demand from the community in terms of real tangible utility, even though it's a buzzword, uh, whether that's uh, leveraging IP, whether that's actually pushing out products that they find interesting, whether that's just banding together for a common initiative. I think, you know, there's going to be a lot more desire for clarity from a community perspective. Um, and all of that is going to contribute to onboarding more and more people into the space as it gets easier, right? The ambiguity about what is Web3, what is blockchain, that's kind of disappearing day by day. And there's tools popping up that are more Web 2.5 focused to kind mm -hmm. of uh, help people get into the space without all of that complexity. So, yeah. That's that's uh, definitely a, a few predictions. Yeah, I like that. So let me ask you this. Since we've last talked, and I'm sure like you kind of witnessed this for yourself as well. It's like there's very 
little amount of projects that has that have actually survived and accelerated throughout the last time, right? Throughout this first cycle of NFTs, I guess. So do you think the hype around NFTs is dying? And that's why we're seeing a lot of these so-called blue chips kind of start to fall off and NFTs are becoming a fad? Or what do you think the space and these NFT collections that have survived have been doing properly to get to the point where they are today? Yeah, um, you know, I think you could kind of look at it from a general perspective to say, sure, the hype around just fluff NFTs in general, okay. uh, it's falling off, right? And that goes back to me saying, I think the consumers are demanding more from where they're putting their money. Uh, just because people are getting more educated, they're seeing people enter the space and you know have successful projects and providing a lot of value to their communities. So I think, you know, in terms of just being able to come in as a no name, a non uh, with, you know, a grand idea and fancy marketing campaigns, I think those days are numbered, um, you know, they'll, they'll mint out here and there, but I think the days of them popping up to 20 floors out the gates are, are really, really limited from here on. Um, and I think a, a reason for that, it, it ties into the other piece of your question is because there are some builders at the forefront of this initiative that are kind of paving the way and showing why NFTs are important. And it's just beyond the, the gambling degeneracy that a lot of us entered the space for initially, right? Um, so, you know, we, we joked about Luca in the beginning. I think he's doing a fucking fantastic job. I love his building in public series, which is showing that you know, I think IP gets a lot of flack in the ecosystem of how it's not a real tangible value, but having that kind of series that he's been posting and showing all the behind the scenes of what actually goes into producing a, a valuable brand is really beneficial. Um, and, and I think kind of shines a light for the broader community to say, oh, this is doable. Like there are projects out there who care this much to, to actually put in this much effort. Um, you know, you've got projects like ours who are pushing out products that solve real web two issues that the masses are familiar with. Um, and then, you know, of course you've got Basie who, you know, we all, we all have our thoughts on, on their kind of other side and, and gaming initiative, but bottom line is they've got a lot of attention on the web three gaming sector right now. And I think that's a really positive, uh, shift. Whereas over the last year or two, Web3 Gaming was all just kind of fluff, kind of buzzwordy, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just fill in the gap type stuff. But now there's actual tangible uh, value to be gleaned. We're seeing gamers come in from the esports the e sector and make a million dollars just by, you know, playing a, a kind of butt exploration game for a week or two. So, nice. yeah, I think um, there's some people definitely paving the way. But overall, I think the hype around just uh let's just call them substanceless nfts is definitely dying which in my in my opinion is a good thing because that allows us to separate from that kind of garbage perspective that people on the outside might have about nfts just by seeing all the headlines about those fluffy nfts yeah i couldn't agree more with you i think one of the biggest no like things that i've noticed personally or overall in the space is nft holders investors are starting to realize that footing isn't a good thing for anybody Right. Especially for leaders, because if you have somebody who's putting their time, their money, their reputation and their life on the line to not only please you, but put the whole space on the map for the world. then the last thing you should be doing is making their job even harder. Right. And that's why I think we've seen like people like yourself, Luca, Frank, 
you know, the Creeps Boys, Ice Bags, all of these different founders be able to come out and push forward the space and get recognized by other people outside the space because they have that support of the community. And I think that's like a huge thing. And I remember when I first came across Root Troop, I honestly had no idea who you guys were. And then one tweet and I mentioned Root Troop and the community is all over the tweet. It's all over Twitter. So it leads me to my next question. How have how has been the community building aspect overall, like throughout the first year, now going into your second year, come together? And how has that differentiated uh, as the project grows? You know, that is an insanely timely question, which leads me to believe that you're an excellent researcher before you jump into these interviews. Um, because we'll, we'll dive into this in depth later, I'm sure, but we recently announced a, a relaunch of our Root Troop and Joey Mob collections, which involves a migration from Ethereum to Polygon. Yeah. And when we posted the initial announcement, just saying, okay, we are migrating at this date, this time, the snapshot's coming. Uh, we said, you know, there's a bunch of reasons we're migrating to Polygon, which we'll cover in a later thread. People just disregarded that piece completely. And we started to receive some FUD for the first time in a long time. And so, you know, in the beginning stages of Root Troop, I feel like I was very, very connected. I was on the ground level. Uh, we were doing weekly, sometimes twice a week AMAs with the community in the Discord, not even public facing, just trying to connect on a, on a homie to homie level, a person to person level with the community. And what this FUD highlighted for me was that we need to get back to those basics in some capacity. We've been building this empire that we see in our heads, um, and we've got a, an exponentially larger team than we had last time you and I spoke with way bigger goals than last time you and I spoke. And with that, it's been kind of a process of graduating myself from being on the ground floor to actually managing teams, you know, going after funding, planning these huge, these huge initiatives. And I, you know, I'll admit I've lost that kind of uh, being in the mud sense of connection with the community lately. And so receiving that FUD, it was very minimal, right? Like the 90% of the community is super happy with it. But, you know, with change comes a little discomfort and it's daunting. So I understand. And people just jumped the gun and they didn't give us the benefit of the doubt, which led me to post an hour long video, which is now taken down. I'll send it to you if you're interested. But just meant to address some concerns. I got a little passionate, a little fiery about it, basically saying, you know, we need to get back to basics. We need to put everything out on the table. If you're not happy with the price action of brews, let's understand that, you know, it's the community who can move this, this forward and can move mountains together. It's not the team. We give you the foundation to support and try to onboard more people with, but past that, a team of five, 10, 15 people cannot move an entire mountain range, but a community of a couple hundred or thousand can. And so we actually just hosted our, our first weekly AMA. Uh, we're getting back to weekly AMAs again. Uh, we just hosted a couple hours ago today in the Discord. And it was really great. You know, it was just uh, very informal. Let's talk about any concerns that people have, any questions, whether it's about Root Troop, whether it's about Seeker, whether it's just about life in general. Uh, let's just connect again. Because that was a big part of how we established our initial community that you felt the strength of back in the day was mm -hmm. intense, intense, organic community building. Just understanding that there are real people behind these PFPs. They have real names, they have real jobs, families, et cetera, and nurturing those relationships. So now I've committed to getting back to basics in that sense. And we've got a weekly AMA every Monday in New Zealand, Sunday in, in the States, um, and, and it's just meant to connect again. 
Nice. Let me ask you this. Do you think the hardest part for, I guess, founders in the space is to figure out what their role is? Like we see some founders say, you know what, I'm going to focus only on community. I'm going to delegate everything else. Right. And then we see other founders, like, for example, Doodles, they're like, hey, we're no longer an NFT company. We don't really care about community, so on, so. And we're going to focus on IP and building and product. Uh, so I think it's a it's a big confusion, right? Because you see every single project, their founder is doing something else. So how, how have you kind of been able to kind of figure out what your role as a founder should be, whether it's for Seeker, the NFT project, Root True, or just overall for both? Um, I will say it's a, a constant learning process, right? So no matter my answer right now, understand that it's constantly evolving. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think a, a big reason for that is like myself, a lot of founders in this space are first time business owners, yeah. first time CEOs, first time founders, whatever you want to call them. Um, and, and with that comes a lot of uh, need for growth and, and iteration as you're going through the process for the first time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think it, you can't blanket say what a founder's role should be. It's based on what your business's goals are and who your community is and what they deem as valuable to them because they are your initial supporters that you always need to look out for in some way, shape or form. And so if they find value in kind of the social element of joining a space for 30, 40 hours a week, and you are the pinnacle in their eyes of, you know, getting in touch with founders, getting in touch with, you know, someone on the team, then you need to show up and you need to be there. Um, but, you know, if the goal of the business is to disrupt a, a multi-billion dollar industry, then you need to recognize that sometimes you need to play into partially your strengths, but also the goals of the business more so than just every single person's demands on the ground. So part of that, right, is, you know, hiring people, bringing people on your team that can cater to those needs where your time isn't necessarily best spent. And so I'll speak to myself personally, when I got into this, into the space, when I started Rootroom, you know, I consider myself a community manager to the extreme. It was just intense community building. It was connecting with everybody in the, in the, in the ecosystem uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, being in the discord, doing AMAs, doing spaces, uh, setting up collabs with other projects. But as I've grown and as the project's goals have grown, you know, I've recognized that playing into my strengths of being a little bit behind the scenes and networking in the real world and, you know, going to business meetings and showing face and shaking hands with executives across industries is way more impactful to getting to where we need to be in the long run than just sitting on Twitter all day. And so, you know, I say that, but even last week, I, I just kind of had that revelation as I was sitting at a table with execs across all of APAC and wondering what the fuck I was doing in that room. Um, so, you know, it is just a constant uh, growing process, I would say. And you can't really put a blanket as to what a founder's role should be. Yeah. Let me ask you, I guess, the question in another way, right? Where do you think holders play on the org chart of a company? So typical web co companies, right? Like if we're talking about web two, you have executive CEO, you have the board, right? Managers, directors, so on and so forth. Content creation business, for example, kind of like an upside down one, right? Because you have everything stems from the creator, editors, videos, so, so forth. So if we're imagining holders in a company structure, 
right? Where do you think they stand on the top, on the bottom? What kind of structure do you position holders as? Are they customers, investors? Because that's something that I have still yet to struggle in terms of understanding what is the holders like real role, right? Besides just owning NFT. Yeah. Um, I, I view them everywhere in that in that hierarchy, really. Um, some people, the extent of their involvement can just be purchasing the NFT and you know trying to glean value of it from it on the on the bottom level. Others, if they say, okay, here's an area I can plug in, you know, then I'm gonna bring them up and plug them in where they have strengths to plug in on. Yeah. And so I think it's 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 more so a matter of just being open and receptive to your community's uh, value adds as a founding team, rather yeah. than just putting them in a box and saying, hey, this is where you guys are stuck forever. And what I mean by that is there's people in our community who will like every single tweet, they'll respond to every single tweet. They have no interest in being involved past that. And that's okay. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go out of my way to bring them up the ladder and you know say, hey, we're holding this meeting. I know you have this connection. Blah blah blah. But there are certain people who are in my ear every single day, multiple times a day, saying, hey, I saw you post that tweet, or hey, I saw you post this new development. I heard you say this in an AMA about a future uh, a future initiative. Here's something that I'm doing in my world that we can leverage, and maybe we can make it mutually beneficial. And so a, a really clear example of that, right, is um, we are currently going after a funding round for Seeker, mm -hmm. potentially Rue Labs. Um, and, and I've been looking to leverage contacts and networks from everybody in our community. Now, there's people who have not raised their hand once, but there are people who said, hey, I'm sitting at these tables once a week, and I think there's a real opportunity to plug in. What can we work out? And so I'm going to give them a finder's fee. If they give me, if they give me a contact where, you know, that turns into something fruitful, then fuck yeah, we want to provide value back to that person who provided value to us first. And, you know, there's people from the community who will hit me up and say, hey, you know, are you planning to make a Discord bot for Seeker job listings or to be able to search jobs on Seeker through a Discord bot in these communities? It's like, yeah, we have plans to do it, but we haven't actually kicked it off yet. Okay, great. 24 hours later, this person emails me, you know, screenshots and a demo of this bot they've created in their own server. It's like, okay, well, yeah, now we can kind of use you as a contractor for this job. So, you know, I think our community is a little unique in the fact that we've always been very transparent about, you know, launching NFTs as the initial funding round for the development of this bigger business. And so we've garnered a community who's always looking to kind of plug in where they can and utilize their skill sets and networks where they can. But in general, you know, I, I think a lot of communities struggle with that because they're not super transparent about the plans. And then they've got this community who's not super in the know about what they can uh, essentially plug in on, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can definitely relate to that. And I want to dive deeper into obviously, go ahead. I, I was just going to say, you know, I do want to put it out there, right? Like, no matter how involved everybody in our ecosystem is like at the end of the day just by definition they are not investors in the company they are not stakeholders um or, or they're not yeah, stakeholders or shareholders um you know they don't hold equity right but that doesn't mean that they shouldn't get value right we wouldn't be in this position without their initial kickstart and giving us this platform that we do have and so i think they all recognize their their uh their 
kind of involvement to spread whatever message we're putting out, whatever development we're putting out. And they also understand in the future, even though they don't hold equity in the company, that they're going to be taken care of, right? If we turn this business into a unicorn that ends up getting acquired by, you know, recruit holdings or something like that, you know, personally, Adamica, even if they don't hold equity, like I will take care of them because that's just my commitment to the community. And so I think if you just have that kind of mindset of, okay, we're doing this, this, and this, how can we relate that back to the community in some capacity? And how can we get feedback from the community as we're building this? Then it turns into a really mutually beneficial loop. I couldn't agree more with you on that. And I want to dive deeper into Seeker, which is pretty much the new company that you guys are building on top of Rootroot. So I was looked it up before this podcast. LinkedIn is worth $26 billion today, right? LinkedIn is a social platform that's pretty much known to help people find jobs and help jobs find people to work with. You guys are building a unique product that is looking to help people pretty much verify their job history and then verify uh, companies, obviously, and their, I guess, positions and history and so on and so forth. So walk me through why you decided to come into that specific niche and how do you guys plan on making this work? For sure. Um, so Seeker is the flagship product that Rootroop was minted to develop. But to give some context, uh, we can back up to the initial community building initiative of Rootroot, which was back in October of 2021. We ended up launching the collection in January of 2022, for reference. Um, the reason that we started a community was we had been working with projects. When I say we, I mean my current team. Some people have left, but mainly current team. We had been working with projects and you know, just not too happy with how those projects were being run. So we were like, okay, let's just start our own. And in the meantime of planning on how to start our own project, we were also doing some advisement, some project launch advisement for Web2 businesses coming into the space for just random anons with money that wanted to build out teams. And the common denominator out of all of those companies we worked with was, hey, we need to find Web3 talent to fill out our team. We need a community manager, we need a Solidity developer, we need this, that, or the other. We posted on LinkedIn, we posted on Indeed, Glassdoor, and the applicants we get don't know shit about blockchain or web three. It's like, okay, that's interesting. You don't know where to find the talent. Meanwhile, we had a discord full of about 2,500, 3,000 people at the time. And like I said, we've been very intentional about the community we've built up. They're real people with real lives and you know real backgrounds. And a lot of those, those people were like, hey, I would like to transition into web three. This ecosystem sounds very attractive. Um, how do my skills transfer over and where do I even find these opportunities? So we're like, huh, at the time, there was no real central place to congregate for Web3 talent and Web3 employers looking for each other. Yet we knew on both sides, there was an abundance of, of uh, talent and employers looking for each other. And so we started with some placeholder tech, just a Web3 job board, very bare bones. It's still up on rootroop.com slash jobs. Um, basically, uh, the, the goal there was to fill that gap in the Web3 market, which is a very, very small market. If you look at the number of active users a month and, you know, the people actually looking for work, there's hundreds of them, mm -hmm. but there's not millions, right? Um, and so we, we started out with that goal um, and we were pretty successful at it. We've onboarded brands like Time Magazine, DraftKings, you know, help them fill their Web3 positions for their Web3 initiatives. But as we were moving through that process, we had a couple people come into the Discord on both sides. One from the talent applicant side, like, hey, 
you know, we, we applied for this job and have been working for them for a couple of weeks and it doesn't seem like it's a legit business or, right. Hey, on the other side, Hey, we hired this solidity developer who said they could code smart contracts and staking contracts, et cetera. And we're four weeks in and they haven't showed shit for, for what they said they could do. And so we realized that, okay, in a space that thrives off anonymity, fraud can be a big issue on both sides of the employment transaction. And how do we fix that? And so it wasn't just stopping there. At that point, I looked into fraud in the broader job market. And 55% of applicants admit to lying on their resumes. Over 40% of employers have made a bad hire due to insufficient reference checks. And you know the reason for that is there's no platform out there to assist in that reference checking process. It takes recruiters on average three to five days to conduct a thorough reference check. And if you talk to most recruiters, they're gonna tell you they don't even spend a fraction of that time doing it because they're just trying to get their placement fee. And so this snowballs into a really toxic environment where it's costly for an employer to you know, have to hire a new person, right? Time and money that goes into that process. So I got with Corey, my, my uh, CTO of Rue Labs and co-founder of Seeker. I was like, hey, you know, similar to how NFTs provide proof of ownership, you can you know, price it at whatever you want. It's undeniably yours. You can see it on the blockchain. Can we do something similar with work experience and verify that this person actually has the experience they say they do and give them a credential for doing their work? Because that was the other problem. So you've got freelancers who try to chase reference checks and they don't get responses. And therefore, from a, you know, a new client's perspective, they're still at base level. They just have to extend all of this trust out to the person to think that they've actually done the work. And so Corey, my, my, my co-founder of Seeker, um, you know, he's like, yep, I don't, I don't see why not. I don't see why we can't leverage the blockchain to do exactly that and provide proof of experience and make the transactions a little bit more secure and trustless. And so that's when the initiative for Seeker started. Um, and Seeker, just for, for everybody listening, is a blockchain-powered job marketplace that leverages soul-bound tokens to provide an undeniable ledger of work experience and job history for a, a job seeker. Um, and on the flip side, you know, there are review, uh, uh, review uh, instances where it, an applicant can yeah. believe that an employer actually exists and the job opportunity is actually legitimate. So uh, it's kind of long-winded answer on the context. Um, I hope I answered the main question, but if not, feel free to iterate and I'll, I'll get back into it. No, you did. You explained it, I think, very well. So for anybody who didn't catch it, essentially, Stone seen a place in the market where he was like, hey, there's a big lack of opportunity in terms of people lying on their resumes and companies lying about their role. And he's like, hey, how can we figure out a solution that can answer and help both sides of the equation? Right. This leads me to my next question, because I, and I, I think a lot of people could relate to this. A lot of people lie on their resumes because they need to get the job or they think they're qualified enough where if they just add a little bit here, or a little bit there on what they did, they'll most likely do the job and excel in it, right? Do you see Seeker creating problems for people like that and saying, hey, maybe this doesn't make sense for everybody to use and only specific types of companies and roles should use? Or are you guys just going for everybody and you think everybody should just verify their jobs, their resume, their experience, and this should be the way of standard applications for jobs and people looking for them. A couple of responses to that. 
One, uh, a big reason that people feel like they need to lie on their resumes currently is because underqualified applicants are getting chosen for jobs. Uh, the number of Google searches on how to fake a job reference and, and lie on your resume is up 50% year over year over the last three years. It's ridiculous. Wow. And so as a qualified individual, that's who you're going up against in the job market currently. There's no opportunity for your true qualifications to shine and for an employer to pick those up easily and verifiably. And so that places the onus on you to then spruce up your resume past the point of honest levels, right? And so if there's a platform like Seeker where all of your qualifications are sitting there in a verifiable manner that is easy for a potential employer to see and, and pick up on, it should give you, as the qualified applicant, a leg up over everybody in the ecosystem. So if you are truly qualified, then Seeker is nothing but beneficial for you. If you are fluffing up your resume, uh, you know, more so than it is actually legit, then yeah, Seeker is going to cause some friction for you. But that's the point of it, right? Our, our goal is to establish more fruitful working relationships on a, a way more efficient, in a, in a way more efficient manner than currently takes place. And so, yeah, if you're lying on your resume all the time, then Seeker may not be for you, but you're not necessarily the target market we're going after. That makes sense. Uh, two questions, I guess. One is, who do you think the ideal position or demographic company that would be using Seeker specifically? Is there a, a certain persona for this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, at least to start, uh, it's going to be the small business, right? It's going to be the business that doesn't have a massive budget to hire the best recruiting agency in the country. Yeah. It is the small business who the CEO or maybe a business partner or a hiring manager, if they're lucky to have one, uh, is, is typically in charge of doing the recruitment from the ground up. Right. They don't have a ton of resources available to them. And if they are, if there are resources, they cost a pretty penny. Um, so that's another area that Seeker helps out on is we undercut the price of pretty much every job marketplace out there. We give you a bunch of solutions all in one platform. Uh, whereas in, in the typical job market, you're having to post job listings here. You're doing applicant tracking here. You're doing screening here, reference checks here. Uh, Seeker brings it all under one umbrella. So to start, um, we are going to be targeting Web3 businesses specifically, just because we got our roots. That's where we have a, a presence currently. We've got a pretty good network around us and pretty solid reach. Um, but past that, we see Seeker as setting a standard in the recruiting and staffing industry as a whole. And for context here, uh, you mentioned, you know, Indeed uh, or LinkedIn's $26 billion valuation. The staffing industry is is expected to be valued at $800 billion this year. Mm. So there are a fuckload of companies out there that are hiring day in and day out that we want to eventually reach. And what we're looking to do is set a precedent in how recruitment works, right? That's kind of the whole basis of blockchain tools in general. It's not just Seeker. It's why are you building on the blockchain? You're trying to build the new future with a uh, you know, transparency and undeniable ledger of information, whatever it is. In our case, it's leveraging soulbound tokens to have that undeniable ledger of work history. Do we think we're going to be the only on-chain job marketplace out there? Okay. No, absolutely not. But can we be the first mover and do it 
amazingly and then set a foundation for all of these people who have started to get their on-chain credentials to now have that as an, a point of interoperability to take that to other platforms? Absolutely. So once we start getting metrics from the platform being successful, we plan to branch out into the broader Web2 ecosystem. And we have future-proofed Seeker to allow for that. What I mean by that is there's a lot of blockchain interactions going on on Seeker. One, you need to have a crypto wallet tied to your account so you can receive mm -hmm. soulbound tokens. Two, you need to mint and send soulbound tokens to someone. Three, on the freelancer side, there will be a crypto escrow service. Four, uh, paying for job listings, do, buying premium accounts, any premium recruitment features. There will be crypto transactions going on in the background. But for the end user, you can sign in with Google, email, Discord, Twitter, and a wallet is created for you in the background. You don't have to know how to set one up. You don't know how to have to interact with one. You can purchase everything with a credit card and the platform will transfer that to crypto and handle the transaction for you. You don't have to understand how to buy or sell or, or transact with crypto. To mint uh, and create a soulbound token, you don't have to know what the hell that is. You just have to say, okay, we posted this job listing and the platform handles creating a soulbound token. And okay, we've hired Mo for this position and now Seeker sends out that soulbound token to Mo's wallet. But on your wallet, it, it, you know, on the front end for Seeker, it doesn't look like a token. It looks like job experience with a tag that says verified that you can hover over and see a little bit of information as to why that's verified. Um, so, you know, definitely targeting who we're comfortable with first, not shooting for the stars out the gates or being kind of realistic about our current reach and resources. Um, but past that, the, the goal is definitely beyond Web3 um, because we see this as an industry disruptor and Web3 market is tiny in comparison. Yeah, absolutely. Do you guys see yourself as being the main platform or do you think Seeker will thrive better being a part of a platform like a LinkedIn or an Upwork, for example, or something else? Um, you know, I, look, I, I'm a business guy. I, I would like to coin myself as an entrepreneur now. And, um, you know, I think anybody who's running a business has this kind of end goal in mind for that business. And, you know, I think in the best case scenario, we come out swinging, we start making all of these marketplaces sweat a little bit, and then they knock on our door and say, here's an offer and, and an offer that we can't refuse. And that makes sense for, you know, the development of the ecosystem beyond our involvement. Because um, that's just understanding that there's giants out there with a presence yeah. that can just stomp on us, right? Yeah. But the idea that a LinkedIn or an Indeed can do what we're doing right now it is not sustainable. Um, their infrastructure is so large and extensive that to implement something like we're doing would require a complete overhaul. And the education that they would have to tackle is immense. And they don't want that. It's much easier for them to come in and see someone established doing it and then take that tech and implement it later on with a, a, a case study of the last five years of us crushing it. So. You know, I, I don't think we'll be the only one forever. Um, I think we'll be the best one for at least the next several years. Um, but yeah, I think we're just leaving the, the door open in, in terms of where it leads eventually. I love that. Uh, I guess another question that popped up to mind is how do you think Seeker drives value back to Rootroop, which is kind of like the originator of Seeker in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, multiple ways. 
a couple of very tangible ways. One being um, we have implemented a, a very valuable uh, refer to earn system through Seeker. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by that, it, look, we didn't create referral marketing. We didn't create affiliate marketing by any means, but we're doing it better than anybody else. And so what I mean by that is anybody on Seeker can get a 5% commission on referred marketplace sales. And when I say referred marketplace sales, that means buying job listings, buying job listing promotions, freelancer promotions, premium accounts, recruitment features, all sorts of things that are going to be offered, right? Anybody starts at a 5% base commission, they will literally get a commission put back into their account to claim. Now, anybody can jump up to 10% via various activations. Root Troop holders actually start at 25% commission kickback, and they can get all the way up to 50% by way of holding different assets in our ecosystem, like the Joeys, like the Joey Bean incubators, which are not yet grown Joeys, um, and just by referring more people. And so, what just to take that a step further uh i'll give you an example right uh say you refer uh apple to seeker right you are responsible you've got an in with their recruiter uh you say okay this is this this platform that you know i've been in touch with think it'd be great for apple they sign up through your referral code then their account is linked to yours for the next 12 months and so anything they purchase on that platform within that 12 months, you're going to get a commission based on the rate of your commission when they signed up. So mm-hmm. for root troop holders, you know, I think you can kind of see where I'm going with this. If they're able to refer even a couple businesses who are spending, you know, 10, 20, $30,000 a year on staffing costs, then they're going to be getting a lot of tangible monetary value in a legal way that hasn't really been done in the ecosystem. Um, you know, referral and, and affiliate marketing, it's common, but nobody gives you 50% commission on things for 12 months. Um, so that's one way. Another is, like I said, we have built up a community of a lot of people who have their own businesses. They are running companies, whether in Web 2 or Web 3. And so they'll actually be able to buy everything on Seeker with our utility token that they've been staking for called Rula. So you will be able to buy things with credit card, ETH, USD, Matic, uh, probably a couple other tokens. We are leaving the door open there. But for the sake of Rootrip holders, buy everything in Rula and you're essentially getting all of your staffing costs for free. For mm-hmm. free. Um, so that's, that's another big value add. And then the third is kind of the intangible, right? Uh, or yeah, intangible, untangible, what's the word there? I don't know. Um, but that's essentially right. If we're able to you know, achieve our goals at the extent that we believe we will, then Seeker is in front of the masses and subsequently Rootroop will be in front of the masses. And then we can start talking about IP plays and start talking about other community activations aside from just this one tangible tool that they could get value from. It's, oh shit, what's the story behind Seeker? Let's blast that out to our 5 million users that, you know, are on our email list. And, you know, in that story, we talk all about Root Troop. And okay, maybe for a limited time, we post, a, you know, a front end on Seeker that highlights some recent Root Troop listings on our Root Troop marketplace. And people can buy those and understand that if they buy those, they're going to yield Rula, which they can then use to cover their staffing costs. So, you know, that's kind of the longer term and intangible play. Um, but there are two main ways out the gates. Uh, which is buying everything with our utility token and getting insane referral commissions. 
I like that. I'm excited. I'm, uh, it's it's funny that, you know, all of this is now coming to life after pretty much our last podcast, because I remember when you first told me about it, it was just getting started in development. So I'm really excited to see how things roll out. In a time where a lot of NFT collections now have, I guess, a specific demographic, right? It's like, hey, these are the PFP collections. These are the utility collections. What do you kind of see Root Troop sitting, you know, in that ranking and in those categories right now? Where do you guys see yourselves as? It's funny. I would say we're like 75% utility, um, if not for the PFP component of the collection. And I, I have this conversation all the time of if you could go back and do it again, would you change to an 1155 pass or would you do a PFP? And there's probably yeah. cons to both. Um, you know, I, I like I more so I side with the fact that we probably wouldn't got, have gotten to our level um, that we have gotten to without the PFP component, yep. even yep. though it is very controversial because like I'm open about it. People talk shit about the root troop art all the time. They hate it. Or yeah, they it's not the prettiest. People know that it's not like the best art on the blockchain. Yeah. To, to you, right? Like to me, yeah. it, it's subjective. And that's the great exactly. thing about it is we've got a community who majority loves the art. And so they rep it as their PFPs and that's all fine and dandy. They're getting that element out of it. You can identify people by their root troop PFP. You know, you've got Alex Mingola, who's yeah. established a fantastic brand for himself as yeah. the Blue Rue. Like, that's yeah. amazing. And so he finds value in it, right? But then there's other people out there who may hold Rue, though, never wear them. And so they don't give a fuck about the PFP element. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the other part, right, is like, you know, sure, 75% utility. Uh, let's maybe call it 15 or 20% uh, community. But then there's another piece of it, which is the, the philanthropic initiatives that we have for Root Troop. Uh, Root Troop is based around a super endangered species of animal called the tree kangaroo. There's only 2,500 left in the world. Uh, they're, they're native to Papua New Guinea and the Daintree Rainforest up in Queensland, Australia. And not many people know about them. Um, but we've done some work with different organizations and have donated about 50,000 AUD uh, in total to these different organizations. We've got an event going on uh, the first week of May in the Daintree Rainforest with one yeah. of those organizations. So, you know, that's another piece about NFTs, which I, I just I think people they, they, they grasp onto one component of them. When the beauty of it is that they can be so many things. Like, sure, they can be art. Sure, they can be community. Sure, they can be utility. Sure, they can be philanthropy. Uh, and I think the best projects find ways to harness little bits and pieces from all of that. But you should definitely have one clear kind of uh, main initiative that you're going for. Otherwise, it gets a bit muddy and unclear. Yeah, I agree with you. I think you said it perfectly right there. And you were like, a lot of people just grasp onto one thing. But NFTs are so many different things. That couldn't be any more of a realer statement, I guess, right? Um, do you see what happens in the NFT space affecting Seeger? Like, do you think Seeger is attached to the NFT space as a whole, whether it survives or not? And tell me why not. Not at all. And and that's like, that's, that's what helps me sleep at night is, I think you may have noticed over the last several weeks, maybe a couple months is, there's been an intentional effort to separate ourselves and our community and our brand from the drama that is Web3 NFT space right mm-hmm. now. Um, and, and the reason we can do that is because we're not relying on liquidity from the NFT space to thrive. We have built a product that has the potential to be a massive revenue generator. 
And we have also built a product that has the potential to pass a shitload of value back to our NFT holders, as we just discussed. And so with that, you know, we're able to kind of tune out the noise. Um, you know, there's not this pressure that we feel to be involved in all the latest happenings from mm -hmm. this project and this project flooding each other, this founder doing this, that, and the other, which there was in the initial stages when we had yeah. to build up the community and build up the hype and recognition. But I think now that we have that foundation, we are in a position where we can say, okay, our time is better spent in these meetings with executives with real deep pockets and real experience running and scaling businesses. And, you know, just having these, these very, very deep, fruitful connections being formed in the real world. Whereas I feel like in Web3 initially when I got in, there was a, an intense focus on networking and building up your, your kind of, for lack of better words, again, network uh, in the space with your personal brand. And that was super beneficial to me. I think I got there just in time to glean value from that. Mm -hmm. Something happened in the last eight to 12 months where it's all me, me, me. What, what value can I have for me? I'm not looking out for anybody. Fuck everybody. I just care about my bags being pumped. I'm going to post threads that are totally biased uh, just to get people to FOMO and be my exit liquidity. It's toxic. It's toxic. And it's not really beneficial to moving the needle forward. Um, both on an individual project level and on a broader ecosystem level. I think, you know, we're seeing projects come out with these announcements that they just raised at, you know, certain valuations. And a lot of them you've never heard of before because they realize that, you know, they don't necessarily have to be attached to the NFT degeneracy, uh, the degenerate side of the NFT space to thrive off of NFT tech, which is kind of the differentiator, right? It's, it's, it's understanding that you're either here to trade and make money and like claim you're here for all sorts of reasons, or you understand that the most, you know, uh, impactful part of this ecosystem is the technology that's underlying everything, whether it's art, philanthropy, utility, that tech exists, how you're harnessing it is up to you. And so for us, we're, we're harnessing the tech through and through, we're harnessing the community through and through. We don't necessarily need to be in that noise all the time, um, which is something that I, I think a lot of founders are, are you know, uh, struggling with at the moment is it's gotten very unattractive to be a founder in the Web3 space. Um, you know, something we talked about earlier was flooding founders and, you know, contributing to the bags going down. It's not beneficial. And so, you know, I think people are trying to figure out ways they can separate themselves from that noise, but they haven't been laying the groundwork over the last year, which leads to that bloodbath we were talking about initially. Yeah, it's like the, literally the, the job of a, being a founder for NFT projects is like, think of it as like Mark Zuckerberg in a group chat with Congress every single day and he has to listen to what they say. It's like, it's just so unrealistic, right? You know, Everybody has their own opinion. It, it reminds me, have you seen um, those TikToks floating around of the TikTok CEO being grilled by, by Congress yeah. in the States? Yeah. And yeah. I mean, just the, the, the idiotic questions they're asking him. And you can just tell in his facial reaction that he's like, he just wants to say, are you fucking kidding me? And yeah. you can't. And that's, that's exactly what being an NFT founder is like at times. You've got all these people who, who may think they know the bigger picture. They, they have you pegged for someone that they have in their head. Uh, and you could be totally different. You could have great intentions. You could be building, you know, 18 hours a day, but not necessarily publicizing all of that. 
And, you know, people are going to chirp in your ear like you're not building and like you have horrible intentions. And it all roots back to the fact that they got into the space for a very different reason than what your project is, is there to do. Yeah. And I truly believe that any founder in the NFT space right now that ends up succeeding, or even if they fail, are probably going to learn some of the most valuable skill sets in their whole lives and end up being some really big entrepreneurs over the next five, 10 years, hands down. Because what you learn here in terms of building in public, being able to kind of control like this public stock like product, being able to build product and put all of that together is like such a hard thing to do. And anything you say or do can affect pretty much your stock price in a direct level where it's never been done before. It's just like, I don't know how some people do it and some people do it really good. So hats off to them. But yeah, it's crazy to see. I know you mentioned, obviously, you guys are moving the NFT collection. Polygon? Yep, Polygon. We see Utes moving to Polygon. We see other projects moving to Polygon. Why are you guys bullish on Matic? On Matic, that's a, that's a different question. On Polygon as a layer two scaling solution, so many reasons, right? Um, you know, just the interoperability that we'll be able to achieve between the Root Troop ecosystem and Seeker moving forward, uh, it, it just gets, you know, exponentially better uh, being on Polygon. There's higher throughput, there's lower transaction costs. Uh, Seeker for context is built on Polygon as well. Uh, it's built on Polygon and Ethereum, but Polygon is the default chain that we have people sign in with. Um, and, and so that interoperability between our main ecosystem and our product is a, a big grabber for us. Two, you know, um, just the support that we've gotten from the Polygon team and the connections that we've gotten through working with them over the last several months, it's night and day. I've never talked to Vitalik, never talked to anybody at the Ethereum Foundation. No. We're not developing open source, uh, an open source product. And so the Ethereum Foundation couldn't give two shits about us, right? Whereas Polygon, they're, okay, you're building on Polygon, you're building something that's really cool and that has an actual use case to solve a real world problem. How can we support you? Let me get, you know, this person from this team, this person from that team, this person from that team, all in an email chain and let's brainstorm how we can help you achieve your goals. And so, you know, I think collections like Utes, it's great. They're, they're getting a lot of funding from Polygon and mm -hmm. that's fucking amazing. Like hats off to them and you know, props. They're not giving us funding, but what they're giving us is intense support and connections that we didn't have the doors, we didn't have the open door to uh, before being in touch with Polygon and initiating this migration. Um, past that, you know, it's it's not just interoperability with Seeker, it's interoperability with more tools that are being developed. Uh, we recently partnered with Volturo Labs, who, you know, run mm. Psychedelics Anonymous, and they just pushed yeah. out a trade swapping marketplace called New Dawn. Um, and so they've actually done a complete overhaul on New Dawn to support Polygon ahead of our migration. And so mm -hmm. now one of the biggest points of contention in the PA ecosystem with New Dawn was, oh, it's costing multiple dollars each time to, you know, deconstruct and reconstruct and add different traits. It's going to cost the root holders pennies on the dollar now to do that. Wow. So they can play around and customize as much as they want. Uh, past that, it's just... Is the future in our opinion? It's it's lower congestion. It's way faster. So even if you are a flipper who's just trying to glean value from trading excessively in our ecosystem, like you'll be able to exit quicker. You'll be able to do it on the, on a drop of a dime. You'll have a, a better margin for yourself. 
And, you know, the, the last piece, not the last piece, but the last piece I will say right now is that it, it, it's a nice reset for the community. Um, and, and what I mean by that is I, I see it all the time where people, other founders view other founders and projects as competition. And I, I've always thought that was kind of silly because like you're saying I should be competing with Luca, who's going after an IP play and toys and comics and trying to get into stores where like we're building a SaaS product. It makes no sense. The only, the only similarity, not the only, but the main similarities, we're both building on NFTs, right? Mm -hmm. And so I've never viewed them as competition, but I think the community views other projects as competition, right? Because if they want to see the floor pump, you're, you're competing for attention from yeah. other people in the ecosystem. And now, whereas we're, you know, we're, we're well known in the ETH space for sure. Like, I think if you mention Root Troop, people will be like, oh, yeah, it's that ugly kangaroo art, you know, at the very least. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully they're like, oh, yeah, building cool shit. But besides the point, um, we're, we're not the top dogs. We're not a blue chip by any means. Uh, you know, our floor is fucking pathetic right now. Um, it's not, not something to look at. But what this does for the community is gives them a chance to establish themselves as the top dog on Polygon, right? There's when when somebody says, okay, I want to start buying some Polygon NFTs, I want to explore in the Matic ecosystem, they're going to have less uh, less really legitimate projects to choose from than they would on ETH and scanning OpenSea and seeing all these random drops come out every single day. Now, you know, top dog on Polygon, not too far off. Right. Obviously, we got the big dogs and utes to compete with a little bit. Um, and when I say compete, I mean the community competing with each other, not me and Frank. Like he's doing fucking great work and props to him. Um, but, you know, I think it, it allows us to shine a little bit more for everything that we have achieved. Whereas there's so much saturation in the ETH market that a lot of the stuff we do gets overlooked. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. I think Polygon is going to be that place for a lot of projects as well over the next six months i think we're going to see a lot of projects that you know what we think we have a better chance competing on polygon let's go ahead and move over because eth is for the big dogs especially now it's like hey if you haven't been around the block for a while and you don't have a lot of funding to make a lot of marketing and a lot of noise then you probably shouldn't be on the ETH chain right you should go somewhere else and i think that's what a lot of projects are starting to realize it's like eth is like division one but if you want to go ahead and dominate you can go ahead and go to D2 or D3 and play there. Well, so, what's funny about that though, right? Is like, for, for context, like I played D1 sports. I, I was a collegiate tennis player. And, and uh, you know, what's funny about that is, would you consider Starbucks and Reddit competing in the D2 league or would you consider them Div1? Because they both launched on Polygon. Yeah, that's true. That I mean, well, I guess we're talking, at least for me, when I say that, I'm thinking more like Twitter, based fair web three based nft projects that like we've seen just grow in front of our eyes right because these are all companies and like ips essentially that we've never seen before like they were just all born and we're right. seeing them grow from a young in but yeah starbucks and reddit definitely not d2 players but i would say d2 players in web three for sure that's 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 a fair analysis um and and something you bring up in that uh, kind of brings up a point for me is um you know, I think the ETH space has gotten very um, gambling. Um, yeah. It, it's just, let's throw money and hope it 100x is overnight. And if it doesn't, then fuck the team. They suck. 
Um, whereas the sentiment in the Polygon ecosystem, from what I've witnessed so far, is there is kind of this um, extreme focus on supporting builders, right? Yeah. I think the ETH space screams that they support builders, but if you look at the price action, the money's not going to the builders more often than not. Yeah. But on Polygon, it's a lot of people who understand the tech and who have been here a long time, and they have taken the time to migrate from being an ETH maxi to a Polygon maxi, and there's reasons for that. And so I think just being in front of that type of demographic can be really beneficial for a project like us. Yeah. And one thing that just came to mind as well is like when I think about ETH as well now, I think it's really easy for a good project to die out because of the price action. It's too volatile and there's too many people that will literally just buy, pump and dump your project just for their own sake to make a quick buck while the project gets to suffer going through that. Because a lot of times these projects start come to the market hot and they see a big price surge. And once these traders take their profits, that floor is going all the way down to zero. Nobody wants to trade that project no, no matter what, right? So I think that's a very, uh, I guess, volatile and, and toxic thing to keep an eye on as well for ETH projects. And that's why I think like projects that, like for example, Clanosaurus, I don't know if you've seen them, they started to build on Solana because they know there's more opportunity to build a, a really good community there. And then if it makes sense, Let's go ahead and make a transition to another chain. But yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. As we uh, get closer to wrap up, I want to ask you some easier questions here, I guess, right? Um, what's the biggest lessons you've learned kind of being like a one-year founder in NFT space so far or Web3 as a whole? You just don't know everything. Um, you, you, have to, you have to keep an open mind as you move through your processes. No matter how much you think you're playing into your strengths, Sometimes you run into something that completely derails what you think is your strength and, and what you have always known to be your strength. And it turns out to be maybe a weakness that you need to fill in the gap with. And what I mean by that is either fill in that gap with education or with more talent uh, on, on your team. And so just keeping an open mind, um, not getting an ego is, is really important. Um, I think I've, I've, experienced getting an ego at, at some point. I think I was pulled back down to reality very quick, thankfully. Um, but I think that's something that a lot of people get sucked into and never come out of, which can be to their detriment and ultimately their downfall. So yeah, number one thing is just staying open, understanding that the greatest asset we have in this space is being connected to everybody. And there's a lot of really talented, smart individuals that yep. if you just understand you're the dumbest person at the table, you can walk out, you know, knowing 10 times more. Yeah, I love that. And uh, another quick and easy one, and we'll probably wrap up with this one is um, my brain just fogged out. <laughs> uh, That's fog. good. My brain will fog out as soon as you ask it. <laughs> um, oh, that's what I was going to say. Is there uh, a specific moment or person that has helped change your life or how has your life changed because of Web3? Wow. Um, one specific person. Either a person that has like really affected your life in because you met him in Web3 or just how has Web3 really affected your life and changed, I guess, the, uh, your just approach to life in general, right? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to go with answering the latter um, because there's so many great people that have affected my life yeah. in a positive way. Um, 
you know, one person I'll just give a shout out real quick. And then I want to go to the latter part of it is Voltura. Um, you know, I think he gets a lot of flack in the ecosystem. And, you know, I think that comes from being super ambiguous about who he was and his background and having those super hyped marketing campaigns. Mm-hmm. But he is genuinely one of the nicest and, you know, uh, uh, nicest and most genuine people that offers to help and add value wherever he can. And from a business perspective, he's helped me out so much because he's been in the position before, maybe not in Web3, but just in business. And in terms of structuring team and structuring, you know, equity and structuring financing deals, like I'll give him props whenever I can, Um, you know, shout out Bolt. He's been a great help to me personally. Um, But in general, how Web3 has impacted my life, um, I used to be a lone wolf for sure, Uh, you know, just keep a very, very small circle around me um, that I trust fully. Anybody outside of that, I'm very skeptical of. Uh, historically, still kind of in, in that in that sense, but uh, historically way, way worse, way more closed off. And I never understood rallying with a community. I played tennis for 16 years. And yeah. the main so- reason that I played tennis, whenever people would ask me is, I hated losing because of other people. And I hated mm-hmm. sharing my wins with other people when they weren't contributing. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of uh, building a community around a common goal and working together to achieve that goal is something that has drastically changed my life and my outlook on things. Um, you know, I think I used to be a, a definitely one of those people who would extract value where I could and kind of you know, finagle in conversations and climb up ladders. Um, But now I've had this shift over the last two years where it's, if I can just find ways to add value to these conversations, if I can add value to your ecosystem, to your business, to just you on a personal level, you know, that feels good. One, you know, it just feels like something I've never experienced before the last few years. And two, it always comes back to you. It, it always comes back. Providing value before asking for value is the mantra we live by in the Relabs ecosystem, and it couldn't be truer. Um, so I think just experiencing community support and having the opportunity to be super transparent with a community of hundreds or thousands at times has been life-changing to me to understand that, okay, extending trust out to people isn't such a bad thing. And extending you know time and effort out of my days isn't such a bad thing Uh, if it can help someone then you know if it helps me great but if not i've still gotten a feel good from from that situation i love that answer i can definitely relate to it and we can end it on that it's like hey if you're somebody who was a lone wolf or is a lone wolf then nft space is for you specific specifically like just twitter like at its easiest and simplest core is like Think of how long a retweet or a reply on a tweet with somebody who shares the same profile, the same like NFT with you goes. It's like you engage with that one person once and now he's literally your friend every single time you tweet, you hop on a space or you do anything on social media. And that power right there is honestly unlike anything else. And I've been able to kind of witness and harness it uh, firsthand. And I'm sure you have too. So Stone, thank you for sharing that. Thanks for hopping on the podcast. Looking forward to seeing Seeker grow. Same with the root troop and thank you all for tuning in make sure you check out the links below and we'll see you on the next episode peace